Tomorrow marks the 505th anniversary of a day that we now refer to as Reformation Day. In October of 1517, a young Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther posted a series of statements for debate on the castle doors of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, those 95 theses were the product of his spiritual growth and development, recognizing some of the theological errors and grievous practices of the church. Now, his theology was not yet fully formed. If you were to go and review those 95 theses, you would find a number of them that still support doctrines and ideas that he would later find to be unbiblical. Things like the office of the Pope itself, not denying purgatory, or just a couple of examples. But it would mark the beginning of a spiritual journey that would lead up to an event in 1521 where Martin Luther was called before a council called the Diet of Worms. The Diet is just simply a council gathered together by the empire that took civil authorities and religious authorities together to consider issues of grave importance. On April 17, 1521, Luther arrived after completing a 15-day, 300-mile journey from his hometown, Wittenberg. At 4 o'clock, he was taken to the bishop's court, and he waited for two hours to see the emperor. At 6 p.m., he appeared before this council, this diet, led by Charles V, the 21-year-old emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and Johann Eck, his 33-year-old spokesman. Along with them was a large gathering of Roman advisors, representatives, Spanish troops, German political elite, and, of course, leaders in the Catholic Church. Luther was asked two questions only. Do you acknowledge having, having written these books that are now before you, all of these books? And number two, are you prepared to retract them in whole or in part? Luther had agreed to gather at this diet, at this conference, as it were, because he thought it would provide for him an opportunity to debate, to present the truth, to share the gospel of grace as he had discovered it through the scriptures. But it was not an opportunity for debate. In fact, it was really just a trial. He was not expecting a yes or no answer. After his own lawyer objected, let the titles of the books be read, Luther responded very quietly, almost inaudibly, the books are all mine, and I've written more, he said. As to the second question, are you prepared to retract them as a whole or in part, this is what he said. This question touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this, Christ said, He who denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. They gave him 24 hours to think it through. The next day, he gave his famous speech, first giving it in his native tongue, and then they requested that he give it again in Latin, and he did. Remembering some things he forgot in the first giving of the speech, he said, and now famously, this conclusion. Since your most serene majesty and your lordship require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures and by clear reason, for I do not trust in the pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything 
since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Shortly thereafter, the Pope officially pronounced Luther a heretic and made it a crime for anyone to even possess his writings. In those days, to be pronounced a heretic by the emperor meant that you were fair game. Anyone taking your life would be considered doing a good deed. Professor Robert Cold writes of this encounter, Luther's boldness in the face of such vast political opposition should encourage us as believers today. As the active hostility of the spirit of the age grows, and as Christians face the fury of frightened ideologues, we can be confident the Lord's promise to accompany us before kings and others with power is still in force every bit as much as it was for Martin Luther. God will enable us to testify to a saving truth in the most dire situations. Whether we're threatened with words or weapons, the Lord ensures our ultimate safety. We don't know what will result, but we rest assured that the Lord uses both the lives and the deaths of his saints to further his kingdom and bring about its coming. He closes his message with this, Professor Kolb, as we contemplate our daily course of life, along with the world and time in which God has called us as witnesses to his name and truth, we have every reason to be of good courage and strong faith in his presence and support in our lives. Whether we feel as though we are ready to stand for him or suspect we, too, could easily cave to those who oppose his word, we can be confident that the Holy Spirit remains our guide and our comforter. He remains our faithful protector, the one who gives the words to speak and stand for Jesus Christ when that is what he needs us to do. That's the sort of courage and fearlessness, faithfulness, that I want you to think long and hard about today. Not in the story of Martin Luther, though this is an event that commemorates that very momentous occasion that launched the Reformation, but in the life of the Apostle Paul and in your own life. And as we do, as we consider the Apostle Paul today, as we go through these series of encounters and dialogues, uh, these debates, as it were, these inquisitions, I want you to go beyond just the history. Go beyond just the admiration of Paul and the telling of a great story. And also, I don't want you to over-elevate Paul. I think sometimes we maybe subconsciously look at these heroes of the, of the Scriptures, and who could be a greater hero of the New Testament than Paul? And we say what he did was totally unique in time and place and purpose. Um, who he was is also totally unique. He's a superhero of sorts, and his life is not approachable to us. Instead, I want to encourage you this morning, as you think about the Apostle Paul, how he stood firmly on what was true, how he delivered a message that he knew would cost him greatly to deliver, that Paul's life is simply a demonstration of everything that we believe, everything that we claim to believe, everything that scriptures take, uh, teach taken to their natural end. If we followed it all the way out, what we say we believe and what these scriptures teach, where would it lead us if we faithfully follow it till the end? We'd be like the Apostle Paul. Now, we may not have the same opportunities. We may never have the same sort of platforms, and I doubt any of us ever will. But yet God has a plan and purpose for us in his economy, what God is doing in this world. You're here where you are, when you are, by God's design, not by accident. Sometimes it's easy for us, I think, to get a little bit discouraged and say the world that we live in is hard, and it's going to be a tough place for our kids and grandkids to grow up in. And that would be true. But this is not the only era in which it's been difficult to be a Christian. 
This has not been the only era in which Christians are persecuted or when the public square is against you. But I would challenge you, it's the same as in every other era. God is using people, His saints, to stand up, to speak the truth, regardless of consequence, to be fearless and faith-filled in the face of any opposition as we honor the King. I want to ask you to pray with me this morning. As we pray together, I borrow again a prayer taken from some old Puritan saints from a different age who well understood the challenge of Scripture and the challenge of the times. Will you pray with me? O Spirit of God, help my infirmities. When I'm pressed down with a load of sorrow, perplexed and knowing not what to do, slandered and persecuted, made to feel the weight of the cross, help me, I pray thee. If thou seest in me any wrong thing encouraged, any evil desire cherished, any delight that is not thy delight, any habit that grieves thee, any nest of sin in my heart, then grant me the kiss of thy forgiveness and teach my feet to walk the way of thy commandments. Deliver me from worrisome care and make me a happy, holy person. Help me to walk the separated life with firm and brave step and to wrestle successfully against weakness. Teach me to laud, adore, and magnify thee with the music of heaven. And make me a perfume of praiseful gratitude to thee. I do not crouch at thy feet as a slave before a tyrant, but exult before thee as a son with a father. Give me power to live as thy child in all my actions and to exercise sonship by conquering self. Preserve me from the intoxication that comes of prosperity. Sober me when I'm glad with a joy that comes not from thee. Lead me safely on to the eternal kingdom not asking whether the road be rough or smooth. I request only to see the face of him I love, to be content with bread to eat, with raiment to put on, if I can be brought to thy house in peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 22. And so just keep that open and Maybe keep your finger there. We're going to move at a rapid pace through this text this morning. Verse 22 says, Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now, if you just joined us, obviously you stepped right into the middle of a storyline here. Well, let me give you the briefest background. You remember Paul had come to Jerusalem. He's there at the moment of Passover. The Jews are celebrating the gift of the giving of scriptures and the word and Passover. Don't get confused with Jewish Passover and, and, I mean, sorry, Pentecost. Let's back up. He's there at Pentecost, not Passover. At Pentecost, the Jews are celebrating the giving of the law through Moses. It was at Pentecost, on that occasion, that the Holy Spirit came. Does that make sense? Not sure if you're with me. Sometimes we say, why did Jews celebrate Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit and birth of the church? No, the giving of the Holy Spirit and birth of the church happened at Pentecost. Pentecost was something they were already celebrating. It's a high holy day for the Jews, and so you have literally a couple of million are probably gathered there at the temple. Paul now is rather renowned, infamous, if you will, if you're a Jew, about his ministry out there, his mission to the Gentiles. Paul, being falsely accused, tries to do some things that will find acceptance among the Jews with which he is kin. They are his brothers, and he wants much to win them. In fact, in the book of Romans, he declares his desire to win them would even be, if possible, at the expense of his own salvation. He would be damned if they could be saved. 
when Paul begins to speak to them, a riot begins to break out at the point of him saying something. God sent me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And when Paul mentioned the Gentiles, these were pagans to them. The Jews did not love them and seek to win them. The Jews loathed them and sought their destruction. And at the moment Paul mentioned Gentiles, that God had sent a Jew to the Gentiles, they didn't want to hear anything else he had to say. Part of it was religious reasons. Part of it was cultural. Part of it was nationalistic. But they saw the rest of the world as their enemies, and they were doing everything they could desperately to pre preserve their sense of Jewishness. And they accused Paul of being anti-Jew. He's against this people. He's against this place. He's against this law, against the people, against the temple, against Moses. What more could he do to be judged? And in that moment, when they're on the verge of beating him to death, the Romans swoop in. And they take him away, and they take him into custody. It says, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into there, I mean, they're just apoplectic. There's your word of the day. If you don't know what apoplectic looks like, it's that. It's people just going nuts. They're so angry, they don't know what to do with themselves. They're throwing their clothes in there, they're screaming, they're yelling. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him for like this. The Romans were not gentle people. They were not going to have a conversation with him. They were not going to put him before a counselor. They wanted to get the truth out of him. In his super helpful book, to see the whole storyline of the Apostle Paul and to see the humanness of the narrative, his book called The Apostle, John Pollock writes this about this account. So they removed his chain, stripped him, bound his ankles to a bar, tied his wrists to long hooks, which they then threw over a beam above and slightly ahead of him. They pulled on the hooks until his arms were stretched high above his head, and his whole body, leaning forward, hung taut. The position was painful in itself, and every blow would fall on tight nerves and muscles. Paul was not bent over a whipping post for punishment, because the aim was the extraction of information. Someone would stand near his mouth, expecting between screams to hear him confess his crimes. By now, Paul knew what was intended. He was to be given the dreadful flagellum, a murderous scourge of heavy rawhide loaded with jagged bits of zinc, iron, and bone. Whether to force evidence out of slaves and those without rank, or as a prelude to crucifixion, which Jesus had endured, the weight and lacerating of the scourge could kill a man. A survivor would have torn, would have torn nerves, damaged kidneys, and might even be out of his mind. If Paul lived through it, he would likely never preach again. What happens next, verse 25, but when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flag, flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately and the tribune was also afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him but on the next day desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet and he bought, bought, brought Paul down and set him before them why did they want his death why capital punishment what is the real crime? And so what he does now, fearful of what he had just done, violating the rights of a Roman citizen, which could cost him professionally and personally, he now gathers together the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And so along with the high priests and 70 others, these men gather together, and Paul now stands in the exact spot where Stephen once stood, right before being stoned. 
And he stands with some of the same men, some of those who had condemned Stephen to death. And here in this moment, now he's going to give testimony. Consider the exchange, starting in verse 1 of chapter 23. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul's right there. Brothers, my conscience is clear before God. Just that statement, which is in fact an emphatic denial of any wrongdoing whatsoever, but a proclamation of his own guiltlessness. He stands before them defiantly for their charges. And this, this riles them to the utmost that Paul says, there's no guilt in me. I've only done what God wanted me to do. So the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Speaking of Jewish law, not biblical law, but nonetheless, the law is there in place that a man should not be struck in this regard. And Paul, probably not able to see clearly, Paul presumably affected with his vision and his health overall, Paul doesn't recognize that this is the high priest. Instead, he calls him a whitewashed wall. You know what that means? You, you know what the religious leaders, what the Jewish religious leaders did in the time of the first century? They would mark tombs by painting them white. And that way they're unavoidable. So that way a religious person, particularly a Pharisee, a Jewish leader, a rabbi, would not touch them and thus defile themselves. And so you have this incredible sermon illustration. Dead men's bones inside, white on the outside. He says, that's what you are. That's what you are. You look to be something on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. But violating Jewish law and custom, those who stood by, Note it, saying, would you revile God's high priest? Paul immediately recants and says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part, one part of the council, were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Let me pause here for a moment. You have two different religious factions. Pharisee, Sadducee, you have to do your own homework on that. I'll only give you the briefest description. But Sadducees denied the supernatural. They denied the reality of angels. They denied the reality of the next life, the resurrection from the dead, eternity. Pharisees did not. Pharisees were studious keepers of the law. They were fastidious about the law and the scriptures. And that was a tradition that Paul had come from. Remember, he told us his teacher was Gamaliel, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. His lineage, his religious lineage is really pretty pure. And he recognizes that here is a dissension between them on the critical issue of resurrection. And he makes this statement. It's with respect to the resurrection, the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. What's he referring to? Jesus. It, let me tell you what the real issue is. The real issue here is not me. It's, it's Jesus and what you believe about Jesus. But when he said this, and listen to this crazy scene. I'm just reading it to you. You can just envision it yourself. A dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Now, presumably, they're not really pro-Paul. They're just anti-Sadducee. And they're driving home a point here. They're driving home a point of theology. You don't believe in spirits or angels, we do. So maybe that's what it is. 
And all of a sudden, the whole thing shifts gears. It's no longer all of these people at Paul. It's these people split and at each other. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, first it was great clamor, that's verbal. Now the dissension becomes violent, that's physical. The tribune, who's Roman, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, caught in the middle, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. That following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Quick overview here in just a few statements. As you can see, the Sanhedrin here is incredibly judgmental and hypocritical. They're judgmental and hypocritical. The high priest was a notoriously lascivious man, evil man, took payments from the Romans, not well regarded by his people in his day and certainly not well regarded by history. They were hypocritical about their own law. They didn't practice what they preached. They were very good about keeping a facade of law giving. But as Jesus had rightly noted about them a long time before, they were, they were vipers. They were full of dead men. There were tombs full of dead men's bones. And they were also theologically at odds with each other over this matter of critical importance, as I said, resurrection. And Paul sees that opportunity to speak to an issue. You're divided over resurrection. And in fact, this whole contention against me is ultimately really about resurrection. Why? Because I am teaching you that this Jesus, whom you crucified, is Savior and Lord, and that I have seen him. And he's giving the gospel, the same gospel, again and again and again. Jesus, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. That's the point. That's why you're opposed to me. You're opposed to me because of Jesus. Meanwhile, the Jews continue to demonstrate their rejection of this gospel. This is what they don't want to hear. This is what they refuse to believe. This is what their hearts are darkened towards and their eyes are veiled from, from seeing. While the Romans, curiously enough, throughout the book of Acts, show an increasing openness to the gospel. So when the debate of hearing or this whole debacle of a hearing is completed, Paul gets the encouragement of God himself. And don't miss this part. Listen to what happens. Paul snatched out now by the Romans for his protection. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, and this is critical to the whole text, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Brothers, that's it. And that's the whole thing in a nutshell. That's the sermon in a nutshell. That's the mandate and the mission. When given the opportunity, testify to the facts about Jesus. When you got a platform or a place, when you got an open door or an invitation, when, when there's a crack in the discussion, when you can, testify to the facts about Jesus. Not to the feelings or to the emotions. Your own story, as powerful as it may be of salvation, your own testimony is secondary to this. It's prelude to the facts about Jesus. And Paul was commended by God for simply doing that. You have done that. You've testified to the facts. When you do that, God is well pleased. If you will testify to the facts, that's it. Do your part. That's being faithful. And then you can trust in God's sovereign grace to do the rest. What happens to all of those people who heard Paul testify to the facts, those people Jewish, those people Roman, 
those people rich, those people poor, those people pagan, those people religious, what happens to them now is between God and them. Trust God's sovereign hand to work, to open their eyes, to warm the hearts, to give ability to respond. That's God. You've done your part. Be faithful to your part. That's faithfulness, and God's well pleased with that. But as you're being faithful to this, whether it's with one person down the street, whether it's your coworkers, with people you go to school with, you give an opportunity. You tell the facts about Jesus. These are, these are facts. Just know that your words may not be believed. They didn't believe Paul. Your words may not be well received. The implications of the gospel are many. They narrow the field. If Jesus is true, then all these other things can't be because they're contrary to this. If this is what God has done to save the world, then all these other systems can't be salvific because they're opposite this. Speaking might prove costly. I mean, for Paul, the cost is obvious. I, I bet we would be amazed if we had any clear picture, any real understanding of the physical suffering of Paul just because of the gospel, the physical part. If we could just see a crippled, aging man still giving the gospel, knowing what it's going to extract from him physically, I think we'd be amazed at that kind of faith. It may prove costly. And realize this, as we gather for worship today, here in this place with ample freedoms to preach and teach, to gather, to worship, to sing, to state, to proclaim, there are plenty of Christians across the planet that to do what we're doing is not only costly, it could be deadly to them. There are believers gathering today who are doing more than just going against the flow of their culture or going against the laws of their country. They're putting their own lives at stake. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Well, as we look at this text, one of the things that Acts makes clear about God's purpose in the gospel is this, and you saw this a little earlier up in your notes. One of those questions as we di diagnose the text, Jesus had promised the disciples that the good news was going to go to the ends of the earth. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. You will be. What he said was prophecy and command. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and he said the ends of the earth, that the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem to everywhere. It's going to go from smallest villages to the mightiest city in the world, Rome. It's going to go from slaves to Caesars and every point in between. And we're seeing that unveiled because now Paul is being pushed out of Jerusalem. He's going to be pushed up the line a little bit till he appears before a Roman governor and ultimately he'll stand before Caesar himself. This is exactly what Jesus said. But he never said it would be easy or without cost. Now, I want to conclude with this. We know what Paul did. So just stick with me here for a moment. Okay, this is, this is so important to me. As I'm looking at this text, I can read the story. And I can see again and again what Paul did. Courage and boldness, coupled with, with love for the audience that hated him. I can see the faithfulness 
the obedience. Acts tells us what Paul did. Acts doesn't tell us why Paul did it. And I don't want us just to speculate. Because Paul in his own testimonies wrote why he did what he did. If you look at Paul standing there and facing such opposition, such persecution, coming near death again and again and again, you can be amazed. You can stand in wonder and awe and go, wow, that's some guy. But I want you to get a sense of why he did this, why he did what he did so courageously, so consistently, so unflinchingly. And the best I can give you is his own words. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to what Paul writes. And see how it intersects and overlaps with what you saw in his life. Not just words, but my life. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There are at least eight reasons Paul gives why he never quit on God. Are these yours? God showed Paul mercy. His entire life before meeting Jesus was a life of, of deception and death. Zeal for what was wrong. Until God showed him mercy. Until God met him and changed the course and direction of his life. Until God invaded his life kicked down the door, seized control, changed his heart and his future, and that was mercy. 
What would be the end of Paul had he never met the living Lord on that Damascus road? That's mercy. As he encountered the mercy of God, he surrendered to God's will. Surrendered to it. I I wish I had a stronger word. I, I don't know of one. I know how Paul would describe himself after this encounter. Open up the book of Romans and look at the very first chapter. And look at the first couple of verses and how Paul describes himself. And what does he say? I, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. A slave of Christ Jesus. That doesn't deny the fact that God made an enemy into a son. It doesn't deny the fact that God took an opponent and made him an heir with Christ. It speaks to the condition of his life now. Until I meet my Savior King, I will serve him absolutely. There will be no claim he can make on my life that I will not give. There will be no ask he can make of me that I will not say yes to. He surrendered. Why would he surrender? Because he was encountered with, he knew and had experienced the truth. A truth he could no longer deny. That's why he stood before them in the Sanhedrin and said, the issue before us is really resurrection. It's the resurrection of the dead that's the center of the issue. Why would he say that? Because as he went to snuff out the early church with the letter giving him permission to do so, up and including capital punishment if need be, it was about the denial of the resurrection of Jesus. But when he met the risen Lord, he could no longer deny it. When he's standing on that road, he meets a man clothed in light, and he says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. That's truth. And so when Paul describes the gospel from that point forward, it's not about feelings and emotions. It's not about making your life better. It's not about discovering your purpose or finding your destiny. It's not just about going to heaven when you die. It's about, I met the Lord, I met the King. He's real, and He's alive. It's truth. Paul also trusted in the sovereignty of God. Paul said to the Corinthians, this same God, whom we all would acknowledge as having the ability and the authority to speak something out of nothing, to make light where there's nothing but darkness. If God can do that, ex nihilo, out of nothing, something, surely he can take a darkened heart and shed the light of the gospel on it. He take a blind eye and cause it to see. He's powerful enough to enable faith. God will do this. I'll trust in that. I'll trust in that moment where it seems like there's nothing but opposition here or antagonism here. There's no way they're ever going to believe this. There's no way they're going to accept what I'm saying. I would believe that were true if it were all about me, if it were all about my powers of persuasion, if it were all about what's typical and normal and cultural. But because I believe in the sovereignty of God, I'll give the gospel to the high priest. I'll give the gospel to a, a tribunal leader of Rome over thousands. I'll give the gospel to a governor. I'll give the gospel to Caesar himself. See, Paul lived for God's glory. He lived for it. That's not some nebulous concept. I'm afraid sometimes it's so nebulous for us, so ethereal, we don't even know what that means to live for God's glory. Here's what it means simply for Paul. I saw the risen king, and I want to make much of this king that I've seen. You should see him too. How can I not glorify the one who's been so glorious to me? who's so powerfully revealed to me. And out of all of this, Paul had, and I use the word healthy here, though it was quite unusual, quite countercultural, quite, quite unordinary. He had a healthy view of his own suffering and death. 
Paul's view of suffering and death could be summarized like this. Paul said, I'm a, my life's a clay jar. It's a clay jar. What it carries in it, the purpose that it has in this world, is far more important than the vessel. The content, far more important than the vessel. He says, the content of my life is I'm caring about the Lord Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. That's why we don't proclaim ourselves, he said. I want to proclaim Jesus. I want to tell you the truth about Jesus. The content of my life is Jesus. My life is for the purpose of making Jesus known. And Paul would say, if, if the jar has to be shattered for you to see what it holds, then so be it. If you've got to shatter this jar that is my life in order for you to see what's inside of it, then so be it. It's just a jar. How could he have that sort of theology of suffering and death? I'll tell you how. It's not because he had something that none of us don't have. It's because he had what all of us have who are in Christ. He believed in the resurrection and everything the resurrection entailed. He believed in the resurrection. Man, I recoil so much against gospel presentations and statements that have only to do with getting to heaven. You know, I, I recoil at this, and I, I just want to challenge you as a Christian. Don't copy and paste that thing on social media that says something to this effect. I don't want to quote it because I don't even want to give it that much credibility. Just in case I'm right, and you stand before God one day, what have you got to lose? I saw a church uh, here the other day was advertising, just try Jesus. To me, that's, a, that's equivalent to just try a cauliflower crust for your pizza. You might like it. Try it. Try diet soft drinks for 30 days. You just might be able to get used to them. That's not what we do with Jesus. We don't try Jesus to see if he fits or to see if he works or to see if I enjoy the experience. Jesus is the king. And here's what Paul said. Paul said, you know, if I die, and I will, and, and my death will be at the perfect timing of Christ, when he chooses it, whether it's by your hand or this hand or that, it'll be by God's choice. And when I do, this is what's going to happen to me. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us together into his presence. This is true for all of us together. The resurrection, that's not fatalistic, by the way. I'm happy to die for this. That's faith-filled. Paul says you can crush this jar of clay. You can shatter it into a million pieces. One day, I'm going to be resurrected with Christ, and that old clay is going to be gone. This hitch in my step, it'll be over. This lack of vision, this hunched over, this perpetual pain I feel, this thorn in my side, done. I'll be resurrected with Christ. Paul had eternal perspective. Eternal perspective. If your only value that you ascribe to your salvation is that you get to go to heaven when you die, you're missing the boat, man. You're missing the boat. What we believe about when we die or when we see Jesus ought to affect how we live every single day. If you really believe that, to be absent from this body, Christians, to be present with the Lord, then that ought to affect what you live, how you live. That's eternal perspective. So it helps you sort through all this stuff. So here's what Paul said. This light momentary affliction, affliction, the flagellum, the scourge, the whip, the chains, the prison cells, the beatings, 
This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Light, heavy. Eternal weight, light momentary. Beyond all comparison. Put the scale aside because it doesn't work anymore. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And he didn't give up because of that. He wouldn't let opposition quiet him. He didn't bow before the culture. He said things that people didn't want to hear because he loved the Lord and wanted his glory to be made known. And God had given him a love for his people. And he would later say to Timothy, I did it. I finished the race. Kept the faith. And now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. A crown. And not for me only, but all those who love his appearing. Yeah, Paul's an unusual man. But Paul's the natural end of doing everything you say you believe and carrying it out till you finish. So what about you? You going to lose heart? Are you going to fight the good fight? Finish the race. Keep the faith. Let's pray. Father God, may we have that sort of hope, confidence, assurance, certainty that births boldness, that fuels obedience, that enables perseverance. Father, may we do it together. These words are written to the church, to fellow believers. Lord, your servant Paul, by your Spirit's words, spoke to the church in Corinth about the resurrection, that you would bring us together into your presence. So, Father, I pray. I pray for the saints in this room and those who will hear this word today. All those who have been made so by Jesus Christ, not by our goodness. We are all jars of clay, but the worth of Christ in us, who by his spirit has made us sons and daughters, saints before you. Father, I pray that every one of them would courageously, faithfully, boldly stand. Stand. As we have believed, so we speak. It's so simple, but wow, so profound. As we have believed, just like Paul said, so simple. We believe this, so we say it. May we do that. May we finish well, and not alone. May we finish well together till we see Jesus. Till you come for us, or you call our names, whichever it may be. Father, may we look to eternity. Lord God, you are our hope in life and in death. And we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.